0: This is channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. The
1: challenge is, you know, and I'll go on record and say this, I don't think officers get paid enough, right? So, and I also don't think that the policies that they use and the ways that they police are the most effective and efficient ways to police our communities. And it's certainly not humane, if you ask me. Um, The the style of policing we have adopted in the United States of America is based upon slave catching, and that's just a reality. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com
0: Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. This week on Crossing Division, we're continuing it with our uh, weekly podcast during our coronavirus in Tacoma series. This is week thirteen, and this week I am very delighted to have Deputy Mayor Keith Blocker with us to talk about uh, what's going on in the city of Tacoma and Black Lives Matter, and um, we have uh, you know some specific to Tacoma Black Lives Matter issues with the recent death and the ongoing investigation into uh, the Manny Ellis homicide. But let's start with our COVID statistics. Um, As of uh, today's Seattle Times, in the state of Washington, we have 24,779 cases of coronavirus. uh, We have experienced 1,194 deaths. In Pierce County, uh, we have 2,078 cases and have had. And have experienced 87 deaths. Um, for Pierce County, our exposure rate is 23.4. So um, 23.4 people have had COVID um, or currently have the cases with a thousand within a thousand people, which is um, not a great rate, but it's not a horrible rate. Uh, it's about in line with where we've been all along. So that's it for the virus statistics, but let's now move on to talking with Keith Blocker. Uh, Keith, you are a Tacoma City Council member and deputy mayor for the city of Tacoma. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, so again, my name is Keith Blocker, Um, was most recently elected to a second term in office on the Tacoma City Council in 2019, Um, served four years and uh, was elected in 2015, where I made it through a seven-person primary, and then um, was in second place uh, the night of the election. I love to tell this story. The night of the the um, primary election, I was down about 29 votes, and by that Friday, I was up about 25 votes. So um, I'm living proof that every vote does, does matter, um, so make sure you get out there and vote. Um, for for our primary election and our general election, uh, because your vote does count. So here I am about five years, almost five years later, serving as deputy mayor of the city of Tacoma. When I was first elected, I was the first Black male to ever run for office and be elected to city council. Um, Harold G. Moss was appointed in the late 60s and he ran for office and he was reelected. Prior, in between myself and Mr. Moss, obviously we had uh, council member Woodards, who who was now our mayor. We had council member uh, Strickland, black woman, who was also now, who was our our first black woman mayor. Um, There was uh, Bill Moss, uh, Dolores Silas, um, and there's one woman, I always forget her name, but uh, there was another African-American female who also served on the Tacoma City Council. So, and that's in the history of Tacoma. And I was the second black male to, to play it, to be in this role. Um, and I, I don't take that lightly, it's very serious to me. And uh, I try to, you know, do the work I do with, with as much integrity as humanly possible and also be a strong voice for, for the black community. But I recognize my role is not just for black people in the city of Tacoma. I serve all people in Tacoma. Um, but the reality right now, when we look at disparities in our community, is the black and brown communities that are being impacted the most, even with uh, COVID and, as, and, and looking at, um, I call racism a pandemic as well. Um, so we're dealing with two two overlapping pandemics. Um, obviously, COVID nineteen is something that we could get over, and and I'm I'm hopeful of that. But the pandemic of racism is obviously going to be a harder challenge.
0: Yeah, obviously it is. Now, in addition to your responsibilities on the city council, I know you're really active in your community, especially working with Black youth. Mm-hmm. What sort of what can you tell me about that?
1: So I've, I've been a, a mentor for years. I worked in a nonprofit sector, um, was the lead uh, mentor for the male involvement program with the Tacoma Urban League. Um, I worked and did mentorship with working with uh, individuals who are trying to get access to going to college with the... Um, with the nonprofit called Metropolitan Development Council, I was an edu- education advisor, um, and most recently I was uh, the the uh, director of middle school programs with Peace Community Center, which is a Hilltop-based uh, nonprofit that serves students from elementary school all the way into college. So and I was the director of the middle school program. I left that position in 2018 to, um, to focus on my own consulting business, um, which I, I serve as a consultant under the business my, my wife owns with uh, Dorian Waller, Christina Blocker and Dorian Waller are the managing partners, and I'm one of the consultants that work with their company, uh, which is our way consulting group where we do diversity equity and inclusion training as well as political consulting and we also support organizations who want who are interested in doing community outreach with uh with 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 targeted uh groups that historically have been marginalized and left out
0: mm-hmm. that's good um there's a just thinking of Archway, there's a really good article today on mm-hmm. Crosscut by Melissa Santos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, talking about the really stark disparity in um, using political consultants in the state, and especially by the Democratic Party, that um, and especially in legislative races, that you know, essentially there are a number of highly qualified, highly skilled Black consultants, political consultants, and they just aren't getting the same opportunities as the traditional uh, white consultants. And and I have certainly seen that myself in campaigns that um, even in Tacoma, um, a lot of our campaign work is still going up to Seattle for consultant Mm -hmm. compliance work. So I'm glad that um, I know that uh, Christina had an opportunity to be part of that uh, article. And I'm really glad that you guys have been excellent about, you know, sort of speaking out in a, um, in a very, thoughtful way of sort of pointing out, you know, there are some other disparities here and we should talk right. about them. I think that's right. really helpful.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm extremely proud of of Christina and the other black consultants. You know, it, it took a lot of courage to step up, but the reality is this has been an ongoing conversation for at least the past two years. And, um, you know, while good intentions may be there, but nothing, there there has been no fruit, no fruit is bared from from the talk that we've received from the Democratic Party and the leadership in the Democratic Party. So um, right now we're dealing with some, you know, very troubling times and and we just can't afford to hear, you know, to hear a talk and just get lip service. We need to have some action behind those words. Um, my wife, Christina and I, we, we are dedicated to the Democratic Party. Um, and and when you look at statistics, um, close to ninety percent of the black community who are voters vote for the Democratic Party, and and you know what we're not seeing is enough investment from the party uh, as it relates to supporting um, a committed demographic, and it's almost as if the black vote is is being taken for granted, and that's extremely frustrating, um, you know, and, and and we could do better. So even when we look at Um, campaigns and, and where funds are invested to target certain communities. Those funds aren't directed towards the Black community because the Black community is already being taken advantage of And you have millions and sometimes even billions of dollars are invested to to bring more white people into the fold to vote to to vote Democrat. (laughs) And it's just not happening. Right. And and all the numbers show that those those funds, you know, for the most part are being wasted, where if it was focused and put in black and brown communities, then we could increase the umbrella and, and be more effective in terms of getting the voters. Getting more people to turn out, so um, it's unfortunate that we've gotten to this point. Um, black people have been extremely patient with the Democratic Party, but you know now now is the is is the best time, if if any time, to step up and show that Black lives do matter and that the Black vote does matter and the Black community does matter. But we yeah. can't can't continue to just um, you know it can't just be words; it has to be shown through action.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there is a lot of lip service and and I appreciate you saying there may even be, um, you know, certain feelings and sentiments that are genuinely wanting to have more equity and and inclusion, but if you don't push yourself to do the act, it doesn't matter. And uh, one of the things that I see uh, time and again, and this is more generally in hiring rather than in consulting, is that people in positions of power tend to hire people who look and act and seem like themselves. And so you hire yourself again and again and again, and that's very comfortable, but that means you are never going to benefit from having a different point of view and having more diversity and, and then being able to reach out to other communities, because if you're just surrounded by people just like you, you know, I mean, especially in a political campaign, how many votes is that? I mean, that's just right. not sufficient. And right. we can see that, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, trying to convince, if the focus is on white people, trying to convince white people to vote differently, that's just a lost opportunity because really it's about turning out the numbers who already support your philosophy, right. but, you know, may not be um, folks who've done a whole lot of voting or, or a lot of activism.
1: Right. Right. And, and and right now the the tide is turning, right? Our our country is changing. The demographics of our country is changing, and I've seen statistics that show, um, you know, children under five, you know, children under color who are under five are now the majority. You yeah, know, I, I have I uh, have two boys, a four year old and a two year old, and if you had all, you know, black. Black, the black community, the Latino community, other communities of color; those children will be the majority by about time we get to twenty forty, and wow, The time, time that we start paying attention to that and and invest, you know, in, in all communities. Because what what people don't understand about racism racism is the idea that certain people, particularly white people, deserve resources based upon their skin color Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: and that's rooted in in anti-blackness so you know you know just using psychology if we create a a community a society that says black is wrong and black is bad and everybody else sees that you know people are you know literally making a, a a dash a race towards whiteness and towards white ideals. And that—and that's including black people, right? You know, um, trying to assimilate into something that is not working for us has been to our detriment. And other other communities, other ethnicities see that reality. And they're all, we're all making this dash to these white ideals that are just not Bearing fruit for us, so
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, and that's the challenge that we face in this society. And I, I always tell people, you know, white supremacy is a myth, right? It's, it's a myth that we that that has been placed upon people, and people believe it. But the reality is, anti-blackness is something that's very real, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a real, uh, it's something tangible. It's something that we can see, and and it's something that we need to address and and make sure that we are working with the Black community to help solve these problems because, um, you know, there's all types of statistics that show that we could fix this problem, we could address the disparities in a Black community. It just makes it so much easier to address the issues that everybody else is facing. Mm
0: -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, and speaking of the anti-Blackness, I want to thank you for Uh, helping me I had a situation last week where someone that I knew from Olympia uh, her daughter has been a cheerleader at the University of Washington she's a really she's a really great young woman and um, she's worked her been in dance and been in cheerleading her whole life and uh, she after two years on the cheerleading team when she went through tryouts this year the new dance coach decided that she shouldn't be on the team and the other young black woman who had been on the team for three years successfully also shouldn't be on the team. And the excuse that the dance coach gave was, she just couldn't see them up on the big screen. And I, and I think that statement to me is so um, disturbing and also so, um, so central to a lot of these problems because you don't, some white people don't even realize. They don't question themselves. They don't say, "Why would I not be able to see these beautiful young women up on the screen?" Mm-hmm. Well, the only difference between them—it's not talent, it's not ability. The only difference is these two women were black, mm-hmm. and the rest of the squad was not. And why, in this day and age, the dance coach wouldn't think, "Do I have a problem here? You know, is this my bias that's coming through?" But she didn't. Right. She didn't. And I know I reached out on social media to people. And Keith, you were one of the few people that kind of responded and said, yeah, this is wrong. How can I help you? And yep. I really appreciate that.
1: Yep, no problem. And, and I mean, it's probably more cases like that all the time. And um, we just don't hear about them. You know, but the idea that two young Black women, you know, you know, is, is not worthy of being on the big stage, so to speak. I mean, and it speaks to, um, the institution as well. We have to hold the institution accountable because uh, I work with small nonprofits, and part of the hiring process, we try to get a better understanding of how people see race and how people address bias. And it's clearly that whoever this this dance coach was um, came into the to the fold with uh, a high level of racist bias and, and anti blackness um, that that formulated her ideals that says that these black women aren't worthy of being on a big stage. And, you know, I mean, opposite of, I mean, we have Beyonce, we have Tina. T- I mean, it's like, what do you mean a black woman? Is right, some word? of the
0: best, <laughs> best entertainers <laughs> in the world, the best entertainers
1: right? best in the world are on the big stage, but you know, that's unfortunate, but I'm glad to hear that those young women are back on the team.
0: They are um, back on the team. The UW got a lot of, um, Feedback from the community, and and they were, and I'll give them credit. You know, they looked at it and they said, "Yeah, this is, this is wrong," and we have a lot of work to do. So we'll see. But I'll tell you, you know, we see that again and again. Um, there's been a real effort in Washington State to run a campaign, particularly for women judges. Uh, we have a lot of strong women uh, of color who are judges in our state. You know, two on the Supreme Court. We've got numerous local judges as well. And they're running a campaign of this is what justice looks like. Yep. Because they go out in the schools and they meet with particularly young girls, but really all students. And it's so important for those students to say, you know, wow, you know, look, there's we have a black woman, Helen Whitener, Justice Whitener, on our Supreme Court. Look at that. I mean, and she spends a lot of time going out to the community because she knows how important it is for yep. kids to see her and to understand that they – they can be anything they want to be. And that example, that representation, you know, it's just critically important.
1: Yep. And, you know, so you got that. And it's good to see that, you know, we're highlighting our black judges. But, like, this is something that people don't think about. Um, we have a, a black legislator, um, Melanie Morgan, mm-hmm. who proposed a bill that says you can't discriminate against black hair. Right. Yeah. Like, like we gotta really pass a law to say it's not okay, you know, because because black curly hair is not professional, you know, is is not worthy of being in the, the workplace. Like we have to put that in the law, and and then there's people that still say, oh no, um, there's no such thing as systemic racism. <laughs> there's no anti-blackness. It's like, like it's it's right in our face every day, and you know. People just need to take their blinders off and, and like take a look at what's really going on. And I think um, the Black Lives Matter movement has has helped to do that. But we go back five years, maybe even five months, you know, you know, Black Lives Matter just just to matter. Mm-hmm. Like not matter more. Right. Just, just the statement that Black Life Matters. Like that's the lowest level of any just to matter, not you know, Black life is equal. Black life is supreme. Black life matters. And that's offensive to people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like I, I struggle. Like it, but 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 there's no such thing as systemic racism. Right. And that was a yeah. controversial statement. And now what we're seeing the tide is kind of turning and, um, you know, you say black lives matter in front of the the wrong white person, you might get punched in the face for it. So so it's interesting like just just the shift in the tide and how things could change so quickly. But um it's 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 sad to me that a statement to say black black life matters um, is is controversial.
0: Yeah, it's really you're right. It's sort of just the most basic statement of humanity it shouldn't be met with uh um aggression but it is i mean of course it is people will immediately take that as um some sort of lessening of themselves if they're not yeah. black and that's it, not at all what was intended yeah well let me take a break here and then we'll come back and i want to dive deeper into the black lives matter what's going on in Tacoma and the manny ellis investigation
2: Hi, I'm Melanie Denise Cunningham, your 253 Peace Queen. And I'm Audrey Cunningham. And we're the host of the Channel 253 podcast, What Say You? This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by PeaceWorks United and the Greater Tacoma Community Foundation. And we're here to remind you that the 2020 census is underway and that you, yes, you must participate. That's right. I know people can get nervous when someone from the government shows up with a clipboard. But here's the truth, participating in the census will help us get our fair share of representatives to Congress, and it will also get more federal funds to our community that we can use on urgent matters, like community policing for instance, and many other things. You don't have to be a voter, you don't have to be a citizen even. In terms of the census, you count. Everyone counts. But you won't count unless you participate. Please take the time, answer the questions. 10 questions, 10 minutes, show up for your community. If you haven't completed the census form at this time, please visit census.gov to find out what you need to do now. Thank you to PeaceWorks United and the Greater Tacoma Community Foundation for your sponsorship of Channel 253 and getting the word out about the
0: 2020 census. Hi, we're back. Before we get back into talking with um, Deputy Mayor Keith Blocker, uh, let me put in a pitch for Channel 253. If you are not a member of Channel 253, it is a great way to listen to different points of view and different voices in your local community. Uh, Membership is $4 a month, and... uh, we're always looking for more program ideas. So consider joining. All right, Keith, let's dive a little deeper into the Black Lives Matter. So, um, with recent events, I mean, once, and I, what, what I find a little hard to sort of um, figure out how to start the discussion is it wasn't that long ago that we had the protests in Ferguson. And it wasn't that long ago. I mean, every single death, every single police custodial death, um, it seems like these issues come up again. And and even in our state where we passed a citizens initiative, I-940 saying we're demanding that there be more de-escalation training for the police. We're demanding certain standards for investigations. It doesn't seem to take so now we have another horrific death. And once again, locally and nationally, you know, deaths where we're not allowing people who are in custody to breathe. I mean, they're dying because they can't breathe, which is a horrible thing. And it takes right. time. too. So, I mean, this is a long time. That people are standing around looking at someone suffering. Right. Um, we have this in Tacoma. So talk to me a little bit about what you see in the Black Lives Matter Um Activity now in 2020 and in Tacoma, and is it different? Is it the same? You know, do we hope that we're going to make some push forward this time, or what happens?
1: You know, i I think it. I think it's different. Um, you know, one, we got to give credit to the city of Tacoma and all the leadership from from our mayor to leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement to um, you know reformed, uh, reformed ex-gang members who are out there protesting, helping to keep the peace um, to law enforcement that's out there, you know, not engaging people in a negative way, but just creating space and opportunity for people to have freedom of expression. Uh, There's no accident that the city of Tacoma is not burning right now while other cities are burning. And, and we have an actual incident that happened here in Tacoma. Right. We're talking about cities that are in uproar about something that happened hundreds or thousands of miles away from their city. And Tacoma, you know, is, is dealing with its own tragedy. And, you know, we may have had a few broken windows and the windows that were broken were broken by people who from King King County. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Our, our evidence shows that because our officers um, have done a great job at not engaging people who are you know who have ill intent and what they have done is they have encouraged um the the peaceful protesters to just walk away keep going don't pay these guys no attention and when you're not being paid any attention and officers aren't engaging trying to make an arrest they stop (laughs) Uh. (laughs) who who would have knew right they stop so um So, you know, our law enforcement agencies, you know, Tacoma, Federal Way, University Place, they have had a coordinated effort um, along with, along with the County Sheriff's Department has had a coordinated effort to help maintain peace, working with clergy, Mm -hmm. working with community leaders and working with the city government. So um, nothing but kudos to to residents and and the cities that have have helped to maintain the peace. but with that, you know, I could give credit where credit is, is due, and I could also be critical when when we see dysfunction. Right? Right. Um, I-940 was intended to have more police accountability, and last year um, there was an officer-involved homicide that happened in the city of Tacoma, and um, the city of Tacoma started to investigate, as as they normally would do. The Puyallup Tribe. And the I-940 coalition immediately arranged a meeting with the city of Tacoma and said, hey, what are y'all doing? You guys are supposed to be turning this over to another agency. Mm-hmm. Our response was, well, what agency are we supposed to turn it over to? Because the law was passed, but nothing was done to provide guidance on how the law was supposed to be implemented,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: And, and that's not uncommon. You see that with state laws quite often where it's on the books, but there's no direction or there's no funding. So the city of Tacoma um, paid nothing but respect to the I-940 coalition and said, well, the, the only agency that we could turn it over to was the county at this point. And they, their response was, well, that's better than you investigating your own, your own homicides. I pushed back <laughs> at that time and it was a little, t- I was like, is that really better? You know, um, and they were like, well, yes, it's better. And and so the mayor, myself, um, the city manager, the chief of police all said, well, we'll turn it over to the county. Fast forward, May 3rd, we have this incident uh, with Manny Ellis. Um, The county came out as they were supposed to, I don't know a timeline at what point they started to investigate who was on the scene at the time, but they came out knowing that they were gonna take over the investigation. Uh, March 3rd, uh, email went out to the mayor off the mayor's office. Um, I didn't receive anything. I don't think any of my council colleagues received anything. And what the mayor received was that a man died in custody through
0: cardiac arrest. Um, And so that's not a really very informational. Right. Right. So,
1: so there was nothing to sound off any alarms. Now there was a man Uh, was shot by officers, like our our mayor lights would have went off and she would have started asking questions. But it was like a man died from cardiac arrest and the investigation is now in the county's hands. 10 days later, we're in a global pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So so from March 3rd to March 13th, global pandemic, Um, the world is shut down now. And then fast forward to... What, May 20 something? And that's when it hit the uh, medical examiner thing comes out to the news tribunal. And that was the yeah. time that we were informed about what happened with the Manny Ellis case.
0: Yeah, so, and, and that's uh, really interesting. So I had talked to someone who's got a lot of contacts in the county, and he had learned that the report uh, of the medical examiner was pretty much completed by May 11th. Mm. Um, but they didn't have the signature of the medical examiner until May 19th. And I think that's because. The examiner who did the autopsy and the examination was then no longer the medical examiner, and it took some time back and forth to get his signature. Uh, and so uh, according to some at the county, they said as of May 23rd, which as you mentioned was when the News Tribune got it, the county was saying, well, people who requested it got it, huh. but they didn't give it to the sheriff. Well, uh, I guess the
1: sheriff had to request it too.
0: Sheriff didn't get it. Is sheriff? <laughs> sheriff says he didn't get it until June fourth. Wow! Right yeah. now, uh, the county, the person of the county said um, they could have asked for a faster turnaround, but they didn't. Um, I don't know why. They said their protocol is to notify the family and give the family the option to review the autopsy report before it's finalized, but they didn't do that in Manny Ellis' case. They didn't yep. keep his family looped in.
1: There was no um, reason, probably, to send anything to the city. Because no. The city's city not involved in the investigation.
0: But does that make any sense at all? Because it's the city manager who's in charge of the police department. I mean, why would you keep? Why would you keep <laughs> the police department and the city manager and bring the the mayor and the city council as well? Because you know, if things go sideways, you guys are going to be the first ones that hear yep. people screaming, right? And and then you're sitting there like, well, uh, you know, I don't even know what's going on, I and mean, that's not right. Right. Right.
1: So, so I could say, you know, you know, we're dealing, the city alone is a big agency. Hmm. Um, I worked in nonprofits with 20 people and they work, everybody works in silos, right? So, you know, you're talking about a small nonprofit with people working in silos and the lack of communication across different departments. Now we're dealing with hundred million dollar agencies that aren't communicating with each other. Um, And then you, you add a law, a brand new law where nobody knows what to do, how to do it. There's, there hasn't been any protocol on how to communicate, you know, once an investigation has been turned over and part of the, you know, so what do we do with that? Um, The mayor has requested anytime there's um, officer involved related homicide, she needs to know so at the very least, she could reach out to the to the family to right. say sorry for your loss, and I will work to get any information that I able I am able to get. That's the extent of we can what we can do because they can't share but so much information to compromise the investigation. Um, but if we don't know what's going on, then sure. we can't even reach out yeah. to the families.
0: Well, and I I looked up the statute that talks about what the coroner is supposed to do with the coroner's report, and they are confidential reports. But the law specifically says that, particularly with a police involved death, that there's nothing to stop the coroner from being able to provide information. uh, Because, you know, understandably, people need to know. and, And again, you're right, the tension is not. To get in the way of the investigation. If there is a criminal investigation or if there is a court matter going on, in this particular case, you know, there's a factual investigation. What happened? what happened? There's not a criminal investigation going on. And there's no civil action. There's nothing, there's nothing that would limit or make it unwise for the county to have provided more information, at least to elected officials so that you would be prepared and know what's going on when you get questions. So
1: and we didn't could, even know what to ask for.
0: Exactly. So, I mean, definitely there needs to be some kind of a protocol that's, that's a little bit more robust about, you know, who gets it and what people get so that you're not left, um, you know, feeling like you're missing a critical piece of knowledge. Yep. Yep. Um, I think the difficulty with this one, and we'll see where it goes, but, but the latest is that, um, Although Pierce County was doing a factual investigation to figure out what happened um, when the Pierce County prosecutor learned that a Pierce uh, County sheriff's deputy had been on site at the time that Manny Ellis was in custody, but before his death, then that paints the entire investigation. That means, you know, sheriff's office is not a neutral investigative right. party right. Uh, from what we read in the papers there was also a state patrol trooper that <laughs> was at the site at some point in time and we don't right. know whether he was involved enough so that that paints the investigation and the state patrol shouldn't take on right. uh, i know the attorney general's office is looking at this but it is kind of a mess and as a citizen you're left thinking well you know who who can i rely on for information you know who can i trust in this because it's all looking a little bit like Um, like maybe the police and the sheriff's office wasn't trying to be as transparent as we would like them to be.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's why we need to, you know, set up ways to implement this law like correctly. Mm -hmm. We need to have an independent body that is, you know, made up of community members um, perhaps some law enforcement, um, you know, attorney. It has to be a mix of people to investigate it, and not overloaded with law enforcement because right. that that you know defeats the purpose of maintaining trust in the community. But it has to be an independent body. That, that steps up to investigate. And who knows how much that's gonna cost. We're talking about, a de- I mean, that's a whole nother budget. You know, we're dealing with COVID and all the deficits that are coming with COVID and not being able to generate tax revenue. So, we're right now, we're dealing with a whole lot of problems and a whole lot less money. You know, and I always tell people there's two reasons why, you know, at the very least on the local level, maybe three, there's three reasons why things don't get done. One is we can't afford it. Number two is it's illegal. Mm -hmm. And the number three is, you know, there's just not the political will to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And people tend to think it's just not the political will. That's the main reason. And the reality is it's the budget. And sometimes on the local level, people ask the city to do things that are just illegal based upon state and federal law.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think um, with the budget situation that you know, we sort of know that it's going to be bad, do you think this is an opportunity to maybe look at how the police department is funded and see whether there can be any uh, changes to that?
1: Absolutely. Um, we definitely need to look at our budget and how we spend our funds, and see and see if we're getting what we're you know what we're paying for. Um, the 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 challenge is you know, and I'll go on record and say this: I don't think officers get paid enough, right? So, and I also don't think that the policies that they use and the ways that they police are the most effective and efficient ways to police our communities, and they're certainly not humane, if you ask me. Um, the, the style of policing we have adopted in the United States of America is based upon slave catching, and that's just a reality, and, and it's inhumane. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, literally hog-tying people or muzzling people. Um, there, there has to be other ways to protect yourself, protect individuals who may be in distress, and, and, and you know, maintain life. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's our officers have the authority to what they call stop the the attacker. And stop means kill. Mm-hmm. Like Stop means kill, <laughs> you know, and and they are able to to do that based off of the policies. And then the law is there to protect them under the guise of, you know, we have to protect law enforcement, which is absolutely true but we could protect law enforcement in other ways by coming up with, with strategies that are, that are more humane. I've seen videos of, you know, and obviously it costs a lot of money videos of, you know, eight officers with barriers containing one guy with a knife. Right. And, and, and nobody dies, everybody's safe. So there's definitely ways to do it. We have just chosen this cowboy style of policing and the policies are put in place to to protect the um the officers
0: and um, and I think that this this kind of circles back to your what we started talking about and that is the theme of anti-blackness and and sy- systemic racism in that you know, when I look at the videos of the black men who have been killed in custody a lot, a lot, especially for the ones who, who are asphyxiated, they're not able to breathe at at no point. I mean, they're often on the ground. At no point is someone saying, you know, someone saying, well, let's, you know, take the cuffs off, take the leg restraints off. You know, in many else's case, he says, he can't breathe. He can't breathe. Take the spit mask off of him. Take the cuffs off of him. He's down on the ground. He can't breathe. Take the leg, you know take it off of him. And I, and I think, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't that be your first, you know, if you're getting first aid to someone and they drop and they can't breathe, you know, you loosen their collar, you open their shirt, you try to take away anything that is restricting them or, or causing them to be in distress. That's part of your first aid. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But when I see this, it's most often that the person who's in custody is a black person and it's and it's a I think it's a part of the anti-blackness and part of that that fear that that fear rhetoric that we've been raised with you know so that you see this other human being as not a human being and it allows you and you're of course fully protected by all your policies but it allows you to do things that you you would not do to another person Right. And, and how do we get to that? How do we how do we address that?
1: Well, I mean, I, I keep thinking about, you know, you know, the the George Floyd, you know, he had a counterfeit twenty dollar bill.
0: Like who
1: cares? Who who cares, right? And then and let's contrast that with Dylan Roof, who shot up black people in the church and he was taken into custody alive. Mm-hmm. Right? Like what what is that? And it, and it's not to say that black men don't die. You know, by the ha- I mean white men. White men die too, by sure. the hands of course. Sure, right. Sure. Um, and but black men and black women die at higher rates based yeah. off of based off of um population. So so it's definitely something systemic there. There's some kind of internal bias that that we are dealing with that makes. Black people appear more of a threat. And it makes me think about Tamir Rice, you know, the 12 year old boy playing with a toy gun. Law enforcement pulled up, and within seconds, Tamir okay. Rice was, was dead. You know, um, I often tell people, you know, I'm, I'm from North Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. I remember going to University of Puget Sound, and there were times that I would leave the library, um, you know, one o'clock in the morning, and I, I would walk you know, down Alder to Sixth Ave um, to avoid walking through the dark streets of the North End, being a black man walking through those streets. I wanted to walk down the lidded Street at one o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. This is before before, uh, Trayvon Martin. You know, this, so like, I have a hyper sense of awareness to where I'm at um, because of my black skin, you know, recognizing Mm -hmm. that I could be seen as a threat you know, just walking down the street at one o'clock in the morning. So these are the realities that um, Black men, Black women deal with. And it it adds another level of of stress, you know, to our lives, you know, that we then instill into our children. You know, even if it's not intentional, we are hyper aware that, you know, my wife and I are raising two Black boys that have to grow up in a society um, that may see them as a threat. And it starts at three, four years old, mm-hmm. you know, where, uh, you know, preschoolers are being cuffed. Five-year-old black children are being cuffed and taken into custody because they're misbehaving inside of a kindergarten classroom. You know, I, I mean, that this is what we're dealing with. The suspension rates, like we start, we start anti-blackness really early um, when we start dealing with, with our children and they go from you know, being cute and cuddly. It's mm-hmm. so all of a sudden they're five years old and they look like an eight-year-old or nine-year-old, you know, and, and they're being treated that way. So mm-hmm. it's, it's the extreme challenge that we face.
0: I think it's a very, I think it's a, a really a hard decision for a parent of a black child because, you know, yeah, you don't want to start early on that uh, narrative of you're different and you're going to be treated differently, but you have to. Right. Because they are at risk and you have to instill those life skills in them to be careful. Yep. But I don't know how you break that cycle. I think that's, that's very disturbing. Yeah, it yeah. is. So what can, um, we're almost out of time today, but what would you, if you have any thoughts or advice for, for white people, what they can honestly do. You know, we've seen a lot in the last week, we've seen the members of Congress kneeling with their cloth. Don't do that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't do that because that's just, <laughs> that's just not a good choice. Uh-uh. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think a lot is, um, as a white person, that, that you have to do is 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 allow yourself some time to think you know, that If someone says something and you react, you know, in a sort of a um, negative way. So after Trump got elected, every time I'd I'd say that, you know, well, 53 percent of white women voted for Trump. So thanks, (laughs) white women. "Ah I You know, of course, I didn't vote uh, that way. But the more important thing would be for me to think about that and, and ask myself the question of why are people who look like me wanting to support that philosophy that policy that rhetoric what is going on why are white people attracted to the things that donald trump is saying um because that's the important thing to try to figure out and i think it's hard because people feel like you know i don't want to be accused of something bad and it's like you're not really i mean maybe if you are doing something bad you need to think about it but think broader i mean think about the, the role that bias plays in our lives it's it's huge and yeah. I think that if you're white and if you say that you're not biased or if you say you don't have any prejudices, then you're just not being honest with yourself. I mean, right. You need to think about it. But what, right. what can people do, Keith?
1: Um, I think, you know, read more, you know, you know, just do a little bit of research um, on, you know, what does it mean to be uh, anti-racist? You know, read read um, books that are written by black authors, authors. Um, Shoot, you can read books that are written by white authors like Tim Wise. Um, there, there's a book that came out a few years ago called Dying of Whiteness that talks about how um, white people uh, will vote against their own interests and support things against their own interests if they even think that it's going to help black people. You know, so the Affordable Care Act is an example of that. You know, you could do a survey and ask people, you know, uh, how do you feel about the Affordable Care Act? They're like, oh, great, right? Medicare, you know, helps me. Then you say, well, what do you think about, you know, Obamacare? Oh, hell no, I don't want no Obamacare, you know. It's like it's the same thing, right? <laughs> um, so it's, it's that, 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 that lack of, again, going back to anti-Blackness and, and being so willing to harm yourself to not – work with the community of people that are in many ways are going through the same struggles as you are. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all dealing with poverty. Um, We're dealing with, you know, the lack of resources. So, and instead of connecting and building strengthening relationships with, with, with the black community or the Latino community, um, white people tend to isolate themselves and suffer alone
0: Mm -hmm. And,
1: and it's to their own detriment. And, and this is not nothing new. This has been going on, you know, from the beginning of America. um, And again, it's it's all rooted in in anti-blackness, not wanting to associate with blackness. Um, So read more, uh, have conversations with other white people about how they see things or why they feel, you know, why they feel the way they feel. Like dig deep inside yourself and ask yourself the tough questions about, you know, why do I have these biases You know, self exploration is the best exploration, you know, that's how you reach a higher level of enlightenment by exploring your own, your own thought processes. So I would say start there and then be, be okay with asking questions, you know, Um, be okay with making mistakes. You know, someone calling you a racist is not the end of the world. You know, you can recover from it, right? You know, just do better next time, (laughs) you know, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just so many things that that the white community can do. Um, you know, try to connect with people of color, you know. Um, you know, I saw a study that says black people could have up to eight white friends and white people have one. Well, yes. have, have more than one, right? Mm-hmm. Don't rely on that one black friend because that one black friend does not represent all black people, you know. So it's just so many different things that could be done. and But it takes effort. It takes the willingness to be uncomfortable. Um, I have conversations with, with, you know, in groups with white people and I say, well, I know you're feeling uncomfortable for what I'm saying right now in this one hour session, but when I leave, I'm gonna feel uncomfortable for the rest of the day, right? You're gonna feel better after this conversation and I still have to be black. So, so being uncomfortable, um, for an hour, two hours, four hours, however long your diversity training is, you know, you'll get over it. And, and not only will you get over it, you might be more enlightened from that conversation. You might grow and learn something more from that conversation. So embrace the discomfort that comes with having these tough conversations.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. Um, where do you see the Black Lives Matter protests going next in Tacoma? Um, I know there's got a bunch of things scheduled. Yeah. I know we've got events coming up this month. But.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, again, I, I everything's been peaceful, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I'm extremely proud of, the, of Tacoma and all his yeah. efforts to protest peacefully. Um, you know, I, I had a, a colleague call me and said, says that, you know, um, it wasn't for, the leadership of the mayor and, and, and my leadership, then this city could be burning right now. So true. I think um, that's true. You know, uh just support our mayor, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think our mayor did the right thing when she made her stance. Um, you know, this is not the time to be on the wrong side of history.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and again, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is 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 teaching us a lot, you know tap in, try to seek to to understand, you know, as opposed to um, being combative because, you know, change is necessary. And I do think this is a critical moment in time, and this is a perfect opportunity to take advantage of it and and change our policies, change the way we do things. Um, The pandemic has pushed us in in a place where, you know, everything's a new normal. You know, we can't go back to the way things used to be. And then, you know, you add to the whole layer of there's no distraction from our, our beloved sporting events, right? So, you know, people aren't distracted. People are, you know, have more time to spend with family and be critical about what's going on. And, and also, you know, people are unemployed, you know, so it could be a perfect storm, that that could go either way, right? You know, and right now we're on the right side of this storm, where people are using their energy for things that are positive and productive. But I think we're blessed to be in Tacoma and have and have us move in that direction as opposed to the opposite direction of destruction.
0: That's good. All right. Well, let's end with that that's a very positive message thank you so much for talking to us today and we'll see how things go as we move through into the summer i might want to talk to you some more yep okay
1: let's stay in touch evelyn
0: i will thank you all right bye now bye
1: Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 podcast. Go to alaskaair.com. Check
0: out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel
1: 253.